0: Coming up on this week's podcast.
1: So what's fascinating about this is that now we are called kings and priests. We are a royal priesthood. Part of that, I think, is because simply as adopted children of a king and of a priest, we are now part of this royal line. We now have an inheritance. We now have a responsibility as priests. Stay tuned for more.
0: And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. You
1: know, it's really neat. I know, I know Gary had always said, he mentioned that, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of weird for him seeing his students... And me being one of them, and working with them, I think that that was a little bit weird it 's a little weird Brian and kelsey 's here today. I th- well, you guys were my first students, right, my first year teaching. We were, try not to hold that against me <laughs> so. and any stories you have, keep them to yourself <laughs> <Too late>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it has been quite a week for us uh, just it 's been a whirlwind um, you know. I, I do have to do the politician thing and sometimes stick my foot in my mouth and I know a month ago I stood up here and said, Well, you know, I probably won't be having any more kids and all indications seem that would be the case, but surprises happen. So Carlene and I are expecting our fourth child. And wow. I know. I I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but um You know, she sent out an email. For those who got the email, um, uh, we were planning on go to Guatemala this month. But, you know, Carlene, she just has really tough first trimesters, and she's been really, really sick. And because of that, you know, we haven't been able to raise money as much as we could. And it just became very clear that maybe the Lord, this was not the Lord's will to go at this time, but hopefully another time. And uh, so we're still hopeful that we'll be able to make it maybe next spring after the new baby comes and uh, everything, but we just asked for your prayers, and I know, I know she's very disappointed about it, but at the same time, like, it just wasn't feasible. And then with four kids, we're like, there's no way four kids are going to fit in our house. So we had to start looking for kids and uh, are looking for a house. <laughs> <laughs> we're not adopting any. <laughs> so we, um, so, you know, this has just been a fiasco for looking for houses because it's been two years now, and Gary has been very patient with us and we've been looking for, for houses for two years. And, you know, we've put offers on different foreclosures and we had something in the works since November and just nothing was happening. And so we looked at a house last week and we put an offer in and a couple days later got a counter offer and within an hour and a half closed the deal. It was crazy. So we'll be moving in a month. So July 9th, save, your, save the date, that will be moving date and uh, I hope that you can join with us, and we're just so thankful. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord was just really, really has blessed us, and, and we're, I think we'll see exactly what he had planned in having us wait for so long. And then next week, of course, is baptism, so we're not going to have services here. We'll have services at the Markham's house, and I think the, the address is ris- listed in the bulletin, and along with that, we'll do um, a picnic afterwards, and then after the service day, we'll have a a farewell celebration for Carolyn, who heads to Cameroon pretty pretty soon. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to First Peter, chapter 2. I appreciate Steve and Julie starting us off with this, um, this book. It has been very interesting. It's been neat to study it a little more in depth than I have before. But just as a recap, Steve started off First Peter with an understanding that we are chosen, that we have a new birth. That we have an inheritance and that we are protected. And then Julie followed that with living in the light of hope, with fixing our hope completely on grace, being holy, conducting ourselves in fear and fervent love for one another. So this morning I want to focus on chapter 2, starting with verse 4 and going through verse 10. One of my favorite passages, a real rich passage of scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. Starting with verse 4. Excuse the paint. I have paint all over me. And I'm like, as I'm, as I'm speaking, I'm like, man, I think I have paint in my throat. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> but Clayton was gracious and sad to come over and help us yesterday kind of paint the house because now we have this realization that in a month we have to move. So this has been, it's been crazy getting the house all ready to go. But focusing here on 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him... that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his, mar- his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray this morning that as we study your word, Lord, that you would remove any distractions from me, from anyone else. Lord, let, don't let me become a distraction. Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand this passage that you have laid out for us for this week. Lord, may you guide our hearts and our minds. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the rock. What is it that Peter is talking about here, about the cornerstone, the rock that he's talking about over and over again? And also... What about us? What does this have to do with us being the royal priesthood, the holy nation? How does that have anything to do with what he's saying? You know, Peter seems to have an obsession with rocks, if you think about it. He uses quite a different, he uses a number of different words for rocks. And it's been interesting to kind of dive into the Greek more in my own personal study and see some interesting correlations that I'd love to share with you today. First, Peter uses four different phrases for rocks or cornerstones or stones or things like that. One word he uses is the word lithos, which just means stones. Another one is cornerstone. And actually, it's a compound word. It's acrogonius. And acro is the beginning. It's a prefix of many words that we understand. Acropolis, acrobat. That is like the chiefest, the highest. It is, um, in a sense, the most important. Or perhaps you could say it was. it's in relation to... Um, physical height. Another word he uses for cornerstone actually is head of the corner, kephaligonia. And you see the word gonia, the word gon is something we're familiar with in shapes, pentagon, hexagon, right? Those are all octagon, those are all shapes. And so gon means side. So head of the corner is kephaligonia. And then the word rock, which is the word petra. And those of you who are Indiana Jones buffs, know that the city of Petra was featured, the city in Jordan, it was featured in the Last Crusade. And it's one of that ensign where they go and find the Holy Grail. They go into that stone city, that city that's built right into the stone. And that city is called Petra. He uses these, these four things. And he's going to talk about a number of different correlations to Old Testament scripture. But it's interesting to note that Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. And I was really struck by how 1 Peter and Ephesians really parallel each other. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, there is a a very unique correlation between Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's in verse 3 that they use the same exact words in the Greek. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter is going to talk about everything that Steve shared about being called, being elected, having adoption, having inheritance. And, and Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter one. And here in Ephesians chapter two, we see Paul talking about the same thing that Peter talks about. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So really neat correlations here. And it you know, just speaks to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing these passages and writing scripture. These men were moved by the Holy Spirit. And in some cases used the exact same words. In this case, the word cornerstone is the exact same word that Peter uses. And Peter is quoting from an Old Testament verse. He's quoting from Isaiah 28, 16. See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, for a sure foundation, the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And so both of them are translating this word cornerstone as acrugonius, Peter and Paul. But Peter also is going to talk about another passage. He also quotes from Psalm 118.22, which says, the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner, the headstone of the corner. And in the Hebrew... In the first passage, the word is pinna. And in the second passage, the word is rosh. And those of you who know the phrase rosh Hashanah, the head of the new year, that's where we get this word head. It's the head of the corner. And so they translate the second one as kephali gonia. And kephali means the head, and gonia, the angle, the head of the sides, the head of the corner. Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 118.22. And all three of the, gospel, the Synoptic Gospels, and I'll look at Matthew 21 with me, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And so Jesus uses the exact same phrase and he uses the words of Psalm 118 to talk about himself to the Pharisees. Now, I think what makes this really interesting from a linguistical standpoint is to understand the variety of languages that are being spoken in Israel during this time. I find linguistics probably one of the most fascinating things in how languages relate to each other. And one of the things uh, that, that I've learned from teaching Spanish, and I know Georgia could say the same thing, is that a lot of times you get students and they want to translate things word for word. So they take a joke or something like that and they want to use a colloquial phrase that just doesn't work out. It doesn't It doesn't translate. And you have to tell them time and time again, no, you can't say that's a, colloqu- a colloquial phrase. That's an idiom. And we use them all the time in English, all the time. So If I were to tell you a joke in Spanish, it wouldn't make make sense to you because there's a lot of play on words. And even if I translated it to you, by the time it got done, it just wouldn't be funny at all. And so, understanding understanding that, for example, Analia said to me the other night, she said, why doesn't doesn't an egg like to hear jokes? Because it cracks them up. And then she went and giggled, you know? And I was like, oh, that's good. She's learning, she's, learning, um, she's learning some jokes, some humor. And, but if I were to use that phrase, it cracks him up. Nobody would understand that in, the, in another language. It's kind of like the phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if you did a word for word translation, then a lot of things would come out like the wine is strong, but the filet is tasteless or something like that. And so we use these phrases all the time. But what's interesting is that in some cultures where there's a lot of bilingual or trilingual or multiple languages going on, they, are, they are, have multiple uh, complex levels of humor and of talking. So I know one joke, at least, that uses Spanish and English. And unless you knew Spanish and English, the joke would make no sense to you. So I gotta think, that at this time that that Jesus is living at the time of the apostles, where they live in Israel, where Aramaic is the common language, Greek is kind of the educated language, and remember the Greek language came with Antiochus and, and the Greek empire, Alexander the Great and conquered Israel during the time of the Maccabees, but also they are probably being a little bit influenced by Latin from the Roman Empire, the beginnings of Latin, and And lastly, not to mention Hebrew, because the scriptures are written in Hebrew. And I got to think that if Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he might be using a number of different languages. But at the time that he quotes from scripture, I'm guessing he's quoting in Hebrew and not in Greek. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are going to write all in Greek. And they use the same words that Jesus uses, or they use the same words together along with Peter. And that is the Kephaligonia. Now, why do I think that's interesting? Well, I have a theory, and I don't know if this has a lot of water. It's just a theory, and maybe you say, well, Justin, you're reading too much into this. But there is a word in Hebrew that is kefel. And I gotta think, when they hear the word kefel by just default, they're thinking of their own words, and one of those words might be kefel. Now, kefel means nothing like what kephely means, but it does mean, in Hebrew, it means two sides. So maybe it is that the two sides here that the Cephali is talking about, we see two sides of a stone, right? A cornerstone, you see one side of the corner, you see the other side. Or you could take it to mean something else. You see a visible side of the stone, and then there are a number of sides that are invisible because it's laying on, uh, because the building is laying on the cornerstone. Or perhaps what they're saying in a sense, in a profound sense, in a complex sense, is that Jesus has two natures. He is fully God and fully man, not half God, not half man. He is fully 100% God and 100% man. And so I'm thinking if I'm hearing this in my in my own time, in my own language, and I'm hearing the word carefully spoken, I'm thinking of the word kephil as well, which sounds very similar to the Greek word. I just found that interesting. I don't know. Maybe you're like, well, you're re- reading this way too much. I don't know. But uh, I, I found that fascinating how God uses these complex things and we start studying scripture and getting through the layers, we see how complex scripture is. It's not just, it's simple, but yet extremely, extremely complex. But there's another reason why Peter has an obsession with rocks, and that's because of his name. You might recall in in, um, Matthew 16, one of the passages, where Jesus and Peter have an exchange of words. And remember, Peter's name wasn't always Peter, it was Simon. And Simon, uh, and one day Jesus said to Simon, Simon, What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And Simon says, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're a prophet. Some say this and some say that. And Jesus gets to the point. But what do you say? Who do you say that I am, Simon? And he says, I say that you are the Christ. The word is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I tell you, you will be called Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And so Peter's name means rock. It's actually, it's a form of rock. He says here, he says, And I also say to you that you are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. Or The, the word is ekklesia. I guess... You know, the word Petra may have sounded a little girly to Jesus, and so he can't call his disciple Petra. It's add a little masculine ending to it. We'll call him Petros, you know. But this phrase has brought a lot of uh, discussion with it about what does Jesus mean that he's going to build his church on a rock? And what does that rock refer to? There are a few ideas out there, and it's not necessarily that one idea is right and the rest are wrong. Perhaps all three of them have some weight to them. In understanding the relationship between the Petra, the rock, and the ecclesia, the church, some people have said, well, what Jesus is saying is that he's telling Peter that he will build his church on Peter, that Peter is one of the first leaders of the church. He is the pillar of the church. And there's some truth to that. We can see that. Peter was responsible for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He had a big role. He was one of the, the disciples, one of the apostles. He had a big role in the councils of Jerusalem. Peter was an important figure. Some take it to a a whole extreme to say that this is the apostolic authority and the apostolic succession that's being passed down at this point. And Jesus is giving the keys to Peter, and it begins there and ends with Pope Benedict XVI. You could draw that conclusion, I suppose. But the point is, is that Peter does play an important role in the church. Others will say, well, what Jesus is saying here is he's calling Peter Petros, but then he's saying, on this Petra, I will build the church. And we certainly know that Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter does not refer to himself. And in talking about the cornerstone of the faith, he always refers to Jesus. In First Peter 5, we'll, we'll read that Peter is like, get your eyes off of me, get your eyes on the Christ, talking about the leadership of the church says, treat people with dignity and respect. So it's not like he's taking this authority and making it a chip on his shoulder, but that Jesus is the cornerstone of the faith. And a lot of people say, well, what this is referring to, the Petra of the church, is Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I think this is interesting. And I was reading Matthew Henry, and he makes two points about this position. First of all, he says that if any, any part of that statement, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is not true. If Jesus is not the Messiah, if he's not the son of God, if he's not living, then Christianity is a fraud. Then I've wasted your time, I've wasted my time, we've all wasted our time, if any part of that statement is not true. And secondly, he says, if anyone claims to be a Christian, but does not claim, any part of that confession, then they are being unfaithful to the calling of Christ. That that statement is probably the most basic and most essential statements of the faith. You know, we have a lot of uh, denominations and that have a lot of different beliefs, and some I find strange beliefs. Some I wonder how they come up with certain conclusions that they do. But I have to recognize that though there are tons of denominations and tons of beliefs, and beliefs about baptism, beliefs about the way we take communion, beliefs about how to run the church, at the very core, these are brothers and sisters of mine who say, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I think for so long, you know, beliefs have separated us, and yet we we haven't looked for the unity that is in this statement. I don't know how you would do that. I don't, I don't know how that all works. That's, it's complicated, and certainly there's thousands of years of church history that have wrestled with unity, but yet diversity in the beliefs. But I do know that someone who says, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, I can say, that's my brother, or that's my sister in Christ. Because what Peter is talking about here, about the people of God, about us, transcends our walls, transcends our church. He's not talking about New Hope Chapel. He's not just talking about the Baptist General Conference. He's talking about all Christians everywhere, from every culture and every language, that we are part of something huge. And he uses some very interesting words to make this point. The first thing is, is in talking about the characteristics of the people of God, he uses a a word... He uses a word called laos that we are the laos of God. Now, this would have been a revolutionary statement, and the reason why it would have been a revolutionary statement is because Israel was always referred to in the Greek, the Greek terminology, as the laos of God, the people of God, and so now this is being extended to not only, uh, not only, uh, well, to not only Jews but also to Gentiles. We are all the laos of God. We are all this people of God. We are being incorporated one to another. And I got to think the early Jews were like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is fascinating. That these people who were not of Jewish descent are now part of the family of God. How is that possible? But secondly, he talks about something else. He uses the phrase, you are a royal priesthood. In Revelation chapter 1, we read that Jesus has made us kings and priests. Kings and priests. We also know that Jesus himself was called a priest and a king. That was a revolutionary statement in and of itself. Because to be Jewish, to be a king, you had to come from the line of Judah, which Jesus does. But to be a priest, you had to come from the line of Levi, which he doesn't. But yet he is called a king and priest. A priest because he makes intercessions. He is the mediator between God and man. And so what's fascinating about this is that now we are called kings and priests. We are a royal priesthood. Part of that, I think, is because simply as adopted children of a king and of a priest, we are now part of this royal line. We now have an inheritance. We now have a responsibility as priests. Peter talks about making spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The idea is, is that we have a duty as kings and as priests. But there's something else I think that Peter's saying by using the word laos and using the word kings and priests. And that is, is that in Jewish culture, you, we could say that there are classes. And there are really three classes. There are kings, the line of Judah, priests from the line of Levi, and everyone else. Right? We're not... It's not about a cultural, or it's not about an economic division. It's simply about a uh, relationship to what line you're from. Now, the word laos is the word laity, and that's where we get the word laity. And we often use this, I think, in a in a wrong sense in the church because we use it with another term. We juxtapose it with the term clergy, and we get that word from the word cleros. But the Bible never talks about this idea between about laity in one class and clergy in another class. Never. Kleros means the share or the portion, and so what we say is that the kleros, the clergy, are called by God, and the laity just receive the ministry. So the kleros are called to minister; the laos are the ones that receive it, and it's, this is how it's been used for quite a long time. But this is not what Paul or Peter writes. And in fact, the fact that he would say that we are the Laos and specifically calls us kings and priests or from the royal priesthood, it's to say that there is no class of citizen in the kingdom of God. When people ask me, Justin, when did God call you to ministry? Part of me just wants to ask, well, part of me just wants to say the same time he called you to ministry, the moment we believed, right? Certainly there are different functions of ministry. There are shepherds and there are Uh, There are elders and there are uh, evangelists and there are healers and prophets and teachers and all of these different functions and God calls us to all sorts of different functions. But we're all called to be ministers and we're all part of the body of Christ. That's something that we can't miss out on. And the reason why we can be kings and priests is because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter talks about when he mentions the phrase living stones. You are not a dead stone. You are a living stone. When you, you exist, and you exist differently than the rest of the world, you are infused by something that nobody else has except for those that are infused by the same thing, and that is the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we are one. In Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we are empowered. We are part of the King priest line. Just as Jesus was a king and priest in the order of Melchizedek, we are kings and priests in the order of Jesus our Savior. Something else about this idea of a rock and the idea of knowing what it is that God has for us and what he's doing, I think we can look back in Daniel chapter 2 and see something really special. In Daniel chapter 2, starting with verse 31, you recall that Daniel 2 is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. And so he calls on his his wizards to interpret the the dream. But to make life difficult for them, he tells them, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is. You tell me what the dream is and then you interpret it for me. He was a really nice guy. And so (laughs) Daniel gets the interpretation, gets the vision and the interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so he tells him, he says, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And then he goes on to explain that each part of the statue is a kingdom. And it starts off with the Babylonian Empire. And then it's the Persian Empire. And then the thighs and the belly, that's the Greek Empire. And the iron legs, that's the Roman Empire. And then the feet and the clay are the kingdoms that come after the Roman Empire. But in 34, he says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on uh, on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that stuck, that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then he explains in verse 44, in the time of those kings, talking about the, the kings be, that come after the Roman Empire, in the time of those kings, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain and not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So the idea of a rock The idea of a cornerstone is not an idea that's new to the New Testament. It's an idea that's been interweaved throughout the Old Testament. We could even talk about the rock that Moses struck. And Paul says, that rock was Christ. The idea that the rock is Jesus and that he is building a kingdom without end. And he's carving it not by human hands, but he's carving it. And it will overcome anything that stands against it. And we are part of that rock. We are the living stones sitting on top of that cornerstone, which is Jesus. So in talking about the principles of the Petra and the Ecclesia, I just want to point out a few things. First of all, Jesus is that rock. Jesus is the foundation of the Ecclesia. He is the, our foundation. He is the foundation of the church. And Jesus is building an immovable kingdom. And secondly, we are part of that. We are living stones. We are fashioned by God for his purpose, and we are part of the collective people of God. I think, you know, in in my life especially, I've always wanted to know what the Lord had for me. I think we all do. We always want to know, God, what is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to live? How can I serve? What can I do? Lord, we're always looking for that purpose in life. And I think, um, you know, as I look out, I see a lot of people who try to find that purpose in world things, in worldly things. And they let those things consume themselves. It's it's unfortunate because they never find that happiness. The money never brings that joy. All of the work that they do never brings that joy that Christ brings. And I think, you know, the more I realize it, the more I study scripture and the more I live out this life that God is calling me to, the more I'm realizing what God has been doing all along. And I think of the temple, because Paul, Paul made that point in Ephesians 2 about carving us out and fitting us together for a holy temple. And I can't help but think about 1 Kings chapter 6, because in 1 Kings chapter 6, we read about the building of the temple. And what's interesting to note about 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, in building the temple... All of the rocks were fashioned and cut at the quarry and brought to the temple itself. Nothing was cut at the temple. And some have suggested that what they did was they built this interlocking system of rocks. I mean, really sophisticated stuff. And that these rocks were were planned and fit together and then brought to the temple and then slid in their place and interlocked with the other rocks like pergo floors, so to speak and and that this is what they were doing and paul uses the phrase they fit us we're fitted together so i can't help but think that in understanding my purpose in life i have to understand my role in the body of christ that the more i get involved with the body of christ and i'm not just talking about this church but the body in christ as a whole the whole laos of god that extends beyond these doors that i understand what God is doing in my life. And the more I find that passion, the more I find where I'm fit together with the other living stones, the more I realize what God has fashioned me for. And I think for all of us, if, you know, it's to us to, to really, you know, we, we may not understand extri- um, from the outside what it is that God has for us. We may always wonder, God, what are you doing? How do you, how, how do you have me serving? what's my role with the body of Christ? But I think after we explore and after we work, we may find just how God has us fit together. Whether it's here, whether it's Cameroon, whether it's uh, down the street, no matter where it is, we just never know But that God has formed us to be part of the body of Christ.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep.
1: Yeah,